This is PWTorch.com editor Wade Keller along with Torch VIP audio analyst Todd Martin. This is The Fix with Todd Martin, part two, recorded Wednesday, February 8th, 2017. Todd, I just feel terrible. You, you chewed me out uh, in between part one and two over forgetting to preview the uh, tag team title match at uh, at Elimination Chamber. In it Asia. was... It was a real tongue lashing. I feel guilty now, Wade. I, I, I know. I'm a little shaken. You know, here I give you a pep talk at the end of part one. And then as soon as, you know, we go off the air, you just start, you know, lambasting me. I, now I know how Morrow feels when Vince. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you legitimately have it, any? It's, it, 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 you know, it's, it's why people frequently compare me to Hitler. Not all the, you know, anti-Semitism stuff, but just the propensity to, to burst out into fits of rage. You know, it's, it's, it's on, it's an unfavorable comparison, but, um, you know, what can you do? <laughs> Um, so I don't know if you just were taking an opportunity to just chew me out, if you don't really have a lot to say, or you are genuinely really pissed off about it, but, um, why don't you this let... May, this may surprise you, Wade, but I, I only brought it up as, as the, the, the joke being who could possibly care about the fact that we didn't talk about the tag title match. <laughs> right. And now we've devoted a minute, 17 seconds to it in part two. No, it was good. That was, that was good stuff. Yeah, it's good. I'm glad we think so. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what do you have to say about uh, impact from this past week? Uh, yeah, I, I, I just thought that we had. I thought we haven't talked about impact since uh, you know since the first week that they uh, that they got the, that they had the television shows under new ownership. So I felt it felt like we should hit on it briefly at least. And my big impression watching these shows is it feels like they're in a holding pattern because they're about to sell the promotion as opposed to like they've sold the promotion and now you expect like a new vision to be put through. It really just feels like they're sort of like holding things in place so that somebody else can come in and then, you know, sort of change things. And it's, it's weird. You, you'd, you'd expect there to be more, you know, moving off in a fresh direction. It's just sort of, you know, not not that much is happening. I, I do think Drew Galloway is doing a, a, a very good job as um, the grand champion. I think he's been the highlight of the show for uh, uh, you know a number of these shows since then. Um, but a lot of stuff I haven't I haven't really cared for very much. I think the Aaron Rex stuff is just dreadful. It's just uh, it really feels like a really dated um, presentation of uh, you know just sort of a heel flamboyant gay character. Um, they need to, they need to give you reasons to dislike him that go beyond just he has, you know, effeminate mannerisms. Um, and that seems to be, I mean, it feels like that's why you're supposed to dislike him, yeah. which, you know, um, doesn't, it, it isn't, I think, what a lot of people are looking for, um, from a, you know, heel character in 2017. They, they've sent a lot of mixed signals with the DCC. Like, it felt like, they, you know, they've involved them with some top acts like EC3, but they were booked like such a joke in that, you know, in, in other segments, like that Hardy Compound segment and that unbelievably bad Facts of Life segment a couple weeks ago. I feel like they've, you know, they've been doing, it feels like they've been wanting to do something with DCC, but then they've been undermining at the same time. I, I haven't been a, a particularly big fan of late um, of, of what they've been doing. Yeah, I think they are in flux. Um, and creatively, I think they went into these tapings without the without a, a vision of what they wanted to do. And I, I actually think your perception is is what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, from what I'm hearing, they're 
they don't have a handle on on who the final creative team will be, what vision they are following up on, and they're trying to figure that out. And I think they just decided to kind of continue as best they could with what they were doing last year with the idea being to not do anything too ra- too radical leading into whatever the next tapings brought. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. The uh, uh, You mentioned also uh, the New Japan New Beginning uh, Sapporo. Uh, go ahead and talk about that, and then we'll uh, go from there. Yeah, uh, just by the way, um, between the uh, increased interest of the uh, of the uh, Wrestle Kingdom show this year and the you know larger number of English language shows they're doing and the uh, the access show I think I'm going to start doing more of these talking more about these new Japan shows um, just cause I think there's more interest in them um, than there's been in some time so I'll try to hit Great. on these on the show um, and you know I'm planning to uh, to do that so um, Excellent. we can talk again next week after the, uh, the second new beginning show. And then, you know, as they sort of move along, I'm glad um, you finally gave into my email nudges to, to, to talk more new Japan. You've been resistant for a couple of years. I know. I mean, it was it really, it was sort of going back to the thing between the shows. Like it was really the tone more than anything <laughs> else. I mean, if you'd, if you'd asked me nicely, I would have been active to do it, but I mean, all of the, you know, all of the, the vulgarity of it, I, I thought um, it was more the passive aggressiveness of it. Well, I mean that, that too, you. but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I don't see why, you know, in order to encourage me to cover more New Japan, you have to take so many shots at Big Japan. I don't feel like they've done anything to anyone. And I mean, you, you just, you hate Big Japan. It's, I, I don't really get it. Um, so. That was our worst bit in weeks. <laughs> I take blame for it. Go ahead. I really do. I didn't, it wasn't a good setup. There wasn't a lot to work with there. You did, you did, you did well with a bad setup, a bad, Bad, bad. You're, you're undermining me, Wade. I, I, I. Are you saying you're proud of that? You thought I, it was good lead in and good. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Go ahead, <laughs> go ahead, Todd. <laughs> this might be the end. Just sitting here shaking my head in disgust. Oh, I thought you hit mute button while you were just throwing stuff around. <laughs> no, that would that, that would have been another another option. No, yeah, just, was, I, just, you, the picture in my head of what you were doing is just throwing stuff all over the place. No, just sitting here shaking my head in, in quiet disgust. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people really liked that Minoru Suzuki uh, Kazuchika Okada match a lot. I, I didn't. Um, I, I I think I was way. On the uh, on the negative side of of things, I mean, not that it was a bad match or anything, but like, you know, it, it reminded me a lot of, and I mentioned this on Twitter, of, of the uh, the Bob Backlund versus Bret Hart submission match at Survivor Series 1994, where, you know, Suzuki worked over uh, Okada's leg for 30 minutes or so, and you know, just it, it's a sort of thing where, and and I can understand why it'd be polarizing because if you convert the person that is watching into believe into really being into it then the drama just builds and builds because you know you've got this guy who's you know who's in an, a few holes and just sort of the the drama is is he going to submit is uh is ghetto going to throw in the towel what's going to happen here um and it just sort of the drama builds more and more over time and on the other hand if you just sort of after a while sort of like, okay, I'm ready for, you know, I'm ready for something to develop here. 
um, and you don't have the audience with you, then it becomes monotonous. And that's, that's what it was for me. It was just like, okay, you know, like let's get to whatever we're getting to here. And he just sort of sat in these holds forever. And, you know, eventually I just sort of, you know, I, I, I emotionally checked out and it, you know, it was dramatic at the beginning, but it just went on forever and it didn't, it didn't carry me, but you know, different, different strokes for different folks. A lot of people were talking about it as like a match of the year, uh, contender. Um, and I, I didn't view it in that way, but you know, um, as I said, it was, it was interesting to see, uh, Suzuki gun, uh, losing at first. Um, but I mean, they've done that before. I mean, that was, you know, that was what they did with the, uh, the UWFI, uh, New Japan feud that was, you know, very successful. And, you know, they brought in Takata and immediately, you know, had him lose to, uh, to figure four, which meant, you know, meant more with Takata than it would with a lot of people since he'd sort of presented himself as sort of a more real style and the figure four is not thought of as, as a real hold. So it sort of, it was even more sort of a strike down. Whereas here, you know, Suzuki was booked pretty strong, even though he lost, uh, clean in the end. And, you know, clearly, uh, Suzuki is going to come back from this and, you know, fire back. So there's, you know, the story is, is just getting started there. Um, we sometimes talk about like the, you know, the idea of sort of cheating and, and heel heat and whatnot. And it's more, I think you're more uh, focused on it than, than I am in terms of the idea of getting heat on heels for cheating. And I was watching the Suzuki Okada match and I was thinking about it. And I think a lot of the problem with the, you know, with, with cheating um, now is that so so much when you do a a finish that involves cheating the heat for a lot of people just goes to the promotion rather than the wrestler it's just like you know like the, people don't think of it in terms of oh that dastardly heel has done this to get out of this match it's just like okay the the promotion booked this finish and they're not giving me a conclusion to the match um and it doesn't there isn't heat on the wrestler for doing that and with suzuki in this match he had interference there's interference in, in this match and it didn't lead to the finish and i was thinking if you really want to sort of build up more heat on cheating i think the solution to it may be to do that like have the heels cheat more but when they cheat don't ever have it lead to a finish which sounds sort of which sounds sort of um uh counterintuitive in that you know, like the real heat will be on like costing the guy the match. But like, as I said, like that usually just feels like, oh, you're trying to get out of the finish. Whereas I was watching this match and, you know, the, the story of this match is that Suzuki has just Okada crippled. He's, you know, he's laid him out before the, he's hurt him before the match. Um, you know, Okada is just, you know, has one leg. He's just getting destroyed by the sky. And then. In, in, you know, after all of this, towards the end of the match, after Suzuki has just been destroying him all this time, <laughs> Suzuki's minions run out to interfere. It's like, what a dick! You know, like, you've got this incredible advantage. You've, you've attacked this guy, you know, before the match, um, you know, you know, at the press conference beforehand. You've destroyed him this whole match, and you still need to bring these guys out here? What a, what a jerk. It felt like such a, you know, an underhanded thing to do, and it didn't lead to the finish. 
if it led to the finish, it might even be more like, okay, well, you, you know, you, you didn't even give, after all that, you didn't give us a clean finish. But just having the, the idea of this guy trying to take advantage of this other guy, um, in such an egregious way, I thought it worked better in the fact that it didn't lead to a finish. I was just thinking about that. Um, and yeah, I guess that's sort of the, uh, um, the end of that. Juice Robinson and Goto was exactly what you'd expect. I was expecting the Killer Elite squad to win the tag titles, but they probably still will. So, um, that, that's sort of similar to the, the, the Elimination Chamber thing earlier where, um, uh, where John Cena, I think, will, yeah, I'm thinking John Cena retains a little bit longer, um, just to, you know, sort of mix things up. So. I, I will say going back to the kind of where I focus more on the heel, like, heat on heels for cheating. Part of my frustration is I feel like different parts of the promotion are on different pages as far as it goes, in the sense that if only heels are going to cheat and only babyface and babyfaces aren't, and that's being booked with the intent to make the to define them as heels because they cheat. My objection comes from not having the announcers then sell that, but actually undercutting it. So I I, I don't want to make elaborate explanation for it, but my, the crux of it isn't so much, cause I, cause I understand that as, as I think you've pointed out and certainly you see in sports, it's not a big deal when in the NBA or in the NHL, a player can tell the referee won't see that they're in the NHL that they're hooking or that they're interfering if the referee's not looking or in the NBA, you get away with something and it's not like, Oh God, they're a heel. It's you try to take advantage of the rules. Everybody's doing it. But in pro wrestling, that's not the case. The baby faces aren't and the heels are. I just watched a basketball game yesterday where LeBron took like 18 steps before uh, an important <laughs> basket. It was, it was impressive. Uh, yeah. You know, that's, that actually is a whole other issue, but three minutes. Or was it two nights ago? Yeah. Anyway, should we, two nights ago. should we do some on air research? <laughs> I think it was two nights ago. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> um, and so my issue is if, if, if not everybody's doing it, but the heels are doing it, and they're doing it because it's part of a long tradition of heels cheat, baby faces don't, it's about fighting fair, the heels aren't quite good enough to win fair and square, therefore they cheat to make up the difference, and that's where we're supposed to resent them, and that keeps us from cheering them because they're winners, because people like to cheer for winners, but they don't necessarily like to cheer for people who aren't winners, but cheat to beat people who are better than them. That's all kind of, I think, human nature, but the prop, my issue is, they do a terrible job if that's their goal doing it. It's their goal because one category, one department is doing it, but a couple other departments aren't. And that's where my issue, that's my main issue is if only the heels are cheating and the baby faces aren't, don't have the announcers then on a pregame show talk about how you should do everything you can to win to defend the heels cheating because it makes the baby faces look like saps. So my thing is just get everybody on the same page and you can do it more than one way, but they're clearly going for that at least in one department, in more coming up with match finishes and how the style that people wrestle. And then there's these other departments that don't really frame it and actually undercut it. So I just want to clear up. I, I think you can do a wrestling company without heels cheating and faces not and making that the central focus of, or, or one of the central focuses of why you would boo somebody. You can do a promotion successfully without that. I'm not trying to be all retro and square and old oh, cheaters are bad people type thing. It's more just it's like grammar rules. We can argue about the Oxford comma, but just be sure at the publication, everyone's either doing it or not. You know, if, if WrestleMania, we're going to capitalize the M in mania, let's all of us do it, not just one of us, not just half of us. And that's kind of where my error comes in. So. <laughs> that sounds very Vince McMahon-ish. <laughs> like, if we're all going to say SmackDown Live, we all need to see SmackDown Live. 
Well, I, I, somebody on Twitter like was like, "Wait, you got to give up on the Oxford comma." And I so I like I was like I was in the car and I'm like a passenger. I'm like, I'm gonna go look this up. What? How many publications do it? How many don't? And the consensus was. Either way is fine, but just be sure everybody is on the same page at the same publication so it doesn't look like your amateurs just guessing as you go. Um, and, and I agree with that. I mean, newspapers, there should be a style guide that people follow. And I feel that way about WWE booking. There should be a universal style guide within the company for how we deal with cheating. And either you do it, you get away with it if you can, and then the baby faces should be doing it too. Just like you kind of cheer your home team when they get away with pass interference. Um, because they're <laughs> sneaky about it. And the, you know what? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think people are fine with the <laughs> pass interference, but I don't know how people are cheering. Well, you, I haven't seen a lot of that. Like, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you really, yeah, Norman, you pass interfered well on that play. They're, they, they endorse the means to an end if, if you get away with it. I think there are fans of sports who get mad at players who aren't tricky about about cheating. They do it, and they do it in a way that gets that hurts the team. And then there's the kind of cheating, the kind of bending of the rules or getting away with something. We're like, all right, at least at least he chose his spot to do it. He he grabbed his jersey, but he kind of hid it from the referee so he didn't get called. That's what you sort of, uh, um, not literally, but figuratively cheer. I I, I will say, um, <laughs> as a uh, a longtime suffering Washington Capitals fan, um, one of the infamous moments of the Washington Capitals um, is in a playoff game where uh, the Islanders uh, were were you know had come back and and we're, we're going to win this game and win this series and they scored a goal and after the goal that Pierre Turgeon scored, uh, Dale Hunter came up and attacked him from behind with a with a body check <laughs> as he as he was coming in and it's considered you know one of the real one of the real low moments in uh, in Washington Capitals history really NHL history you know it was really sort of a lot of a lot of a lot of negativity towards Dale Hunter for uh, for attacking him after the goal, and and I, I will concede that I I, I cheered um, <laughs> passionately for Dale Hunter it. attacking him after the goal. I knew it. I knew it. Um, really, I, I don't think there. <laughs> I think for people watch who listen to this show, I don't think that would be a big surprise. <laughs> no, 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 it isn't. It isn't. Um, okay, uh, TNA announced they're working with Prosing Noah. I, I just added that Pierre Turgeon had it coming. Oh, Sorry, gotcha, go ahead. Gotcha. Uh, TNA announced uh, yesterday that uh, they're working with Pro Wrestling Noah. Any any reaction to that? Not really. I don't think that TNA has a lot of uh, a lot of guys that would make a lot of difference in Japan, and I don't think Noah has a lot of guys that would make a big difference uh, here in the states. So I don't think it's ultimately going to be uh, particularly consequential. I think it's two promotions that are both kind of struggling and could use a little bit of sort of positive press and a little bit of hope for for different reasons. So you don't think that Rockstar Spud's going to change that that. Japan fans have never seen anyone like him, and that he can change change the uh, dynamic in Prosing Noah. Um, I mean, I I don't want to be close minded, you know. So you know, Spud, you know, got Godspeed, but I yeah, I, probably not, probably yeah. not. Yeah, it's unlikely. <laughs> Very good. All <laughs> right. Um, oh, the the X, uh, ESPN XFL documentary. Uh, I just curious of your thoughts on the the job that they did with it. And if, if anything stood out, I mean, I, 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 I saw it and I wrote about this in EndNotes. It's kind of an example of Vince McMahon's way of going about life business, um, in, in his bubble and then trying to be that same person outside of 
his own universe, his own world. I hate saying universe now, but outside of the, the kind of his own uh, comfort zone. And in the SF, and and seeing like an hour and a half of people reacting to Vince McMahon and all his quirks and all the the the, the he's he's determined and ballsy and and an idea person, but at the same time, you know, stubborn and sometimes um, almost naive when something is failing that he can just power his way into fixing it. I thought of Roman Reigns a little bit. Uh, I, I so I not so much to like debate the XFL again or or you know I, I saw the documentary is just kind of a fascinating, you know, year slice of time that Vince left this sort of in asylum that is WWE and exposed his antics to the world and how the world reacted to it. Well, let's be fair, Wade. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's fair to 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 compare the the XFL to uh to Roman Reigns. I mean, that's really not, you know, the XFL <laughs> deserves better as far as Vince McMahon's <laughs> failures go. Um you know, uh, I, I thought that the, uh, the doctor was of, a better lead baby face, but that's another issue. Yes. Yeah. I thought that, uh, I thought that the documentary was sort of what I was expecting after that, um, uh, podcast that I mentioned to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it sort of lacked perspective on, on a lot of things and sort of some of the things it focused on, I thought weren't really very sound as far as, uh, what, you know, as far as really sort of pinpointing what, went wrong and what didn't matter. Um, but I mean, it's sort of a, you know, fun blast from the past. And yeah. I mean, it's it, it, Vince McMahon was, I think sort of the star of the show. Um, cause he's such a larger than life personality. And so, you know, the stories of all these people interacting with this guy and their, their impressions of him and how he, you know, came across on television or whatnot. And that was when he was right at his, you know, at his apex, he was so confident and he was really riding high with the WF doing so well. That, you know, he thought he had the, you know, the, the, the Midas touch and, yep. uh, it turned out he didn't within the context of the XFL. But the thing that stood out to me more, more than anything else was the thing at the end where they said that, that in 2001, Vince McMahon finally achieved his goal by uniting the wrestling business. Yes. I was like this. Oh my God. Like, can you imagine a documentary writing that? It was like, geez. But, what about? Uh, what about Dick Ebersol saying that he he would will his children to Vince? Well, hey, I mean, he tr he, he likes the guy, he trusts the guy. I mean, that's cool. I mean, that's you know, like if you know if he has a really good relationship with Vince, I I um I don't have any problem with that. I, but it uh, sounds like just, he did it recently, and I'm assuming Dick's kids are older. So I, I thought that was a little weird to just make the kids go live with Vince. If he yeah, I don't think I don't think a 30 year old is going to want to live <laughs> no, with, no. With, with with Vincent Man. Um, but um, I, but that, yeah, that's that's a different story than uh, yeah, than than framing you know what Vincent Mann was trying to do in uh, you know in such you know overtly misleading terms. What what do you think was was most missing in the XFL story as ESPN told it? Well, it was, it, it was less um. It was less the things that were missing and more just that they focused on, you know, some, some sort of trivial stuff and, uh, you know, were, were overly charitable on, um, on some of the missteps. I mean, they largely, you know, laid out, uh, what the, what the problems were, um, with the leagues. So I don't think it was, uh, yeah, I don't think it was, I don't think there were a lot of errors of omission. Okay. That's it. So what, I mean, if there's not an overt omission, did it, but you've, Indicated you don't think it accurately, proportionately covered 
the actual story? What what would you have put more weight on, or what would be different about the way they told the story? Well, in terms of like the the so much focus on like the idea of like unforeseen circumstances. So like they they focus so much on the idea that like the first game wasn't that good, and then like the power failure and a lot of the things that were sort of missteps were presented as sort of like, oh, look at this wacky idea. Um, you know, like it's it sort of, I mean, I guess you could sort of compare it to the self-destruction of the ultimate warrior in sort of the, to the other, to the other extreme where like, I think the, the, the XFL largely deserved, you know, like people sort of cynically laughing at the, the dumb things that they did. Um, and it was more like, you know, I guess, sort of a more like fawning portrait of the ultimate warrior where you sort of like, you know, laugh away some of the eccentricities in the, in the, you know, name of sort of framing it as, you know, they've, you know, this big success story, which isn't, you know, necessarily how you would frame the ultimate warrior's career. And clearly the, the XFL was documented. wasn't trying to frame the XFL as some sort of success story, but, I think it was more framed as sort of like a, you know, like a gutsy idea that didn't happen to work out as opposed to folly. Um, the, um, the Vince McMahon we saw at the end looked like a different Vince McMahon than in the WrestleMania doc, the WrestleMania Dallas documentary. Um, he seemed like, I, I thought it looked like a more elderly version of Vince in the ESPN documentary than, than the, uh, WrestleMania Dallas documentary where he seemed more himself, the, the, the person we remember from 2001. Um, I don't know the time, I don't know exactly when they sat down with Dick Ebersol and Vince, so I'm not, I'm not sure at this point on the timeline, but I, it struck me that the Vince of 2001 was pretty close to the Vince of WrestleMania 3. You know, the, the Vince who walked out onto the XFL field and they made fun of him for it in the documentary. What did they expect from him? Um, it was, not that far of a different person than the one we saw in, in uh, uh, in, at WrestleMania 3. But the Vince sitting down with Dick Ebersol looked like a guy who was 20 years older, or like, well, way more than 20 years older, not just 15 years older. And, and that struck me too. It was like, it felt, it just, it was not, dis, I wouldn't say disconcerting, but it felt like a different side of Vince than when he's bombastically backstage at WrestleMania or or on camera playing the character and it was he was so subdued and vulnerable and emotional. It was it it showed Vince being filmed in a way that he didn't have total control over in a circumstance that we don't see him in. And I thought that that was for being the central figure in this industry, it's it's always interesting when somebody other than Vince has control over filming and presenting him. Yeah, I wasn't as struck by that as as you were. I'd have to go back and watch it again. Um, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like bombastic Vince. It was just sort of him, uh, sort of reminiscing on this thing with you know with a buddy. But I, I guess I just sort of, I just sort of accept that as part of Vince, even if we don't see it very often. Like that doesn't that doesn't strike me as sort of um, that that doesn't seem contradictory to to who Vince McMahon is in in my mind. I, I you know that that. Didn't strike me as surprising in any way. This isn't even all that uh, pertinent to wrestling, but I am curious. What do you think of Bob Costas in general, and what did you think of his role in this documentary? And getting more micro, what did you think of the way that he handled that Vince McMahon interview, the infamous Vince interview on his show? 
it's been so long since I watched that Vince McMahon interview, so I'd have to rewatch it again. Um, I mean, clearly Vince McMahon came across worse. Um, but, and, and, you know, the clips they aired, Costas didn't come across well, but I'd have to go back and look at the context to sort of get a larger, um, perspective on that. As far as Costas in general, I mean, <laughs> I, I think of him as sort of a pompous windbag. Um, but, yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's, 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 he's a smart guy and, um, he sort of has that sort of old school announcer thing where he's trying to add, you know, gravity to the event and to cover it in a serious manner. And I think that was sort of the expectation of what sports announcers would be for a long period of time, you know, like Joe Buck, um, you know, sort of that mold. And I've always preferred in sports personalities, the ones that don't take themselves as seriously are more sort of lighthearted and um, are sort of, it seems like they're having more fun with what they're doing and not taking themselves um, as seriously. And that, that's sort of my preference in, in that, you know, like I love my, I mean, my favorite time in the, you know, my favorite uh, personality in the ESPN sort of era was Keith Olbermann when he was doing sports center, that sort of, you know, the, the, the yeah. wit, the humor, um, the tongue in cheek approach to it. Um, and you know, Max Kellerman is another of my, of my favorites, you know, very smart guy. Um, and a guy that, you know, thinks about sports on a cerebral level, like Acostas does, but does it with a wink, with a nod, with a, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, a, you know, a different approach to it. And I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's a question of, of, of taste though. I mean, I, I can't be too hard on, um, on Costas in the sense that that, that was what sportscasters were supposed to be when he was breaking in. And I think of so many sportscasters of that era in the same light that I think of Costas in. And, you know, like it's, it's, you know, it's, I think it's sort of unfair to critique them too harsh for doing the, the role that they are expected to play. As far as his role in the documentary, um, I thought he was, I thought he was good. I thought he was more, I thought he had sort of more clear eyes about some of the things than, than some of the other people. Um, and he was, you know, he was clearly, you know, pretty cynical about a lot of aspects of it. But I mean, it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a project that called for, you know, sort of a little bit of a cynical air to it. So I, I thought he was, uh, I thought he was pretty good in the documentary itself. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just interesting because, uh, the XFL was such, I mean, some of the clips they showed, uh, XFL just went, off the rails in the end when it was just desperation and Vince was like, if I could have just done this from the beginning, it'd be a success. And it was just uh, tottery over the top awfulness. And then you had Bob Costas like calling him out on the obvious. And Vince is like in denial that this was, you know, but then you have Costas the way that he carries himself. Cause I've just, find him to be an annoying twit sometimes but um <laughs> twit's a good word yeah um just yeah pretentious not, 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 uh, by the way I, whether whether that's true of costas or not i just meant in general yes. i like that word it's a good word and the the pretentiousness and precious actually preciousness there's something about him that's just more precious than the situation calls for by about 30 percent in everything that he does but, but i actually am more with him than vince i think that what the XFL was, was just ridiculous. And Vince didn't have a clue from the no fair catches to 
to, I mean, like, no coin flips. It was just like, it was just stupid. And I was so happy that Basil DeVito admitted, yeah, I'm the president of the league, but I didn't really know anything about football. Cause <laughs> that, that was part of the problem. It would have failed anyway, but that was a real big issue. That they didn't even understand the, the, the rational reason there are fair catches <laughs> and the problems that can happen if you do a scramble with two guys running close. So it was absurd. Costas knew it, and Costas had that history with NBC. They lost the NFL, and he didn't want any part of it because he saw – I think he was one of the only ones who saw it clearly – what was almost surely going to happen. And there were a bunch of other, several other people, including Dick Ebersol, who were blinded by the Midas touch notion of Vince. And maybe he can do something different and we're going to have minor league pro football players. So let's bring Vince McMahon in to, to, to jazz it up and maybe we can get it to work. And then they ended the documentary. And I thought in a credible way that, that if you throw out 95% of the utter horrible nonsense that the XFL brought, 5% of what they did did move production forward quicker than it might have moved forward otherwise. Um, so they kind of, you know, just gave a little, gave Vince a little pat at, on the head at the end. But I just, I thought Costas was actually the one who saw things the most clearly, even though most of the time I, I, yeah, he's a, I've already said it. So, um, so I, I actually like Costas in this, but I think that could also get me in trouble with some people who just think, you know, no, he was being judgmental of pro wrestling. And I bet he is in general, but, I thought he came across as maybe taking it, like you said, it's from the world he comes from, taking it a little, acting like it's a little more precious. It is just, quote, just sports. But he, he was the one who saw what was happening with, because he separated himself it from it from the beginning. He could be more forthright in his, and inconsistent in saying, this is a mess and this isn't going to work. Yeah, my all-time my all-time favorite of these, though, as far as like pretentious ring announcers, is is Jim Gray, who like every time, um, he, well, not every time, but this has happened a few times. So he does post-fight interviews for Showtime Boxing. Yeah. So it'll generally be about midnight on premium cable, and if anyone, if one of the fighters in his post-fight interviews swears, he acts like, it, you know, <laughs> like, this is the biggest indignity that's ever happened. He's he's shocked, he's appalled, he'll make some sort of remark about this not being family-friendly. He is just so upset that, that, that a, a boxer, after pummeling his opponent, you know, mm. bloodying him into submission at 11 p.m. on premium cable on Saturday night, then let out a curse afterwards. That yes. to me is like the the height of like, <laughs> like, like sports sanctimony over absolutely nothing. Jim Gray is, is, you know, is, is right up there with, uh, with what we're talking about. With Bob Costas. Yeah. Yes. That's very much so. Uh, okay. Um, I, the uh, I, br I brought up the WrestleMania documentary and uh, Dallas documentary and how Vince McMahon came across. I thought to me differently. What did you think of their presentation of that and, and the access, the access level that they gave to fans of what was going on behind the scenes in that at, at WrestleMania and, and the, just the job they did and the place that it has on the network. I liked it. I mean, I, I like those sort of behind the scenes uh, looks at what's going, what what is going on, and. You know, we sometimes, you know, not sometimes, we often get, uh, you know, caught up in sort of the, um, the, the, the booking of the show and the sort of the laying out of the storylines. Um, but if you put that aside and just sort of the, the planning of shows, 
of sort of coming up with, you know, ways to, to present things in a larger than life fashion and putting on like a, a big spectacle. That's something that Debbie and Vince McMahon have always been very good at. And so letting you be a fly on the wall as they're sort of laying things out and planning and setting things up for this big spectacle that, you know, they succeed every year, regardless of what you want to say about some of the, uh, the booking decisions, they succeed in creating a big spectacle. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's fun to, you know, to get that sort of behind the scenes look at the way that they're putting it together. And I, I, I didn't, learn anything from it it was you know it's similar to a lot of the things they do like that but i I think that they're always it's always um interesting when they pull back the the curtain a little bit on uh on that stuff and it's certainly beneficial to them because it you know it 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 sells the story of be as this and wrestlemania in particular as you know this gigantic stage that that they try to frame it as yeah, yeah, it's part of of marketing the WWE brand and that we're not pro wrestling, that we're something bigger and different. And I know they're very proud of their production values, and obviously WrestleMania is the culmination of it all. Is there is there anything in that documentary where you watched that I, if you screened it, you would have been like, yeah, I'd take that out, or I'd not portray that person, I'd not show that side of that person, or anything like that. Or on the flip side, even if you didn't learn anything, did you see another side of somebody? It's sort of like I talk about how Vince being filmed by ESPN, maybe you see a different version of Vince than what he had put, put out there. When they film this, it's, it's through a different lens, figuratively speaking, than, than Ron Smackdown. And, you know, somebody commented on Twitter, like, I watched that documentary and it's like, I, I feel like I know and care so much more about some of the wrestlers in just 30 seconds of seeing them outside of the scripted, raw, corporate speak environment. And when they're just, their guard is down and they're their natural selves. I know that's how people felt about you and Waterloo, Todd, when they met you. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, under, without, <laughs> so, um, as far no, as that nobody, goes, nobody recognized me in Waterloo, right? Come on now. <laughs> there are a couple of people I introduced you to and, and as, as you walked away, they whispered to me, so I'm just going based on that. <laughs> uh oh, that's trouble. <laughs> um, you know, besides, besides Bruce, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I, I watched pretentious like, twits. <laughs> It's terrible that Bruce would say such a thing about me. I know, um, yeah. So I, I, I didn't. I watched it like a week ago, and I wasn't like taking notes or anything. Yeah. So nothing jumps out at me. Okay. Um, I'm sure there were things in there that you know, if I were doing that, I, I could point out. Um, I, in general, though, that speaks to something that I'm a big advocate of, which is making the show feel more, um, uh, uh, feel more authentic. I mean, you can. I mean, it's sort of the way that you want to frame it. I mean, I, I don't think that, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can, a lot of ways you can sort of approach that philosophically, but I think just in general, making the show feel more like something that you can believe in is, 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 is a positive. And, you know, so many of these characters with their script lines, they just don't feel real. And like you say, like just a little short, outside the ring segment where you feel like you're invested in somebody that you, that's real means a lot more. And there isn't a reason you shouldn't think that the people that you see on television aren't real. I mean, that's what wrestling's been for most of the time wrestling's been around and they've, you know, they've, they've done so many things in terms of, of, uh, in terms of the framing of the show, um, and, and the scripting of the show and the way they book it that people don't, 
believe that these people are um, are their authentic selves. And yeah. if you just infuse more of that reality, I think you'd you'd have a lot more successful promotion. And I mean, it's something that we were, you know, we've been through before with WBF and they learned this lesson and they forgot this lesson because, you know, that was one of the, the problems of the, the, the WBF era when they were down was, you know, the, the, the doink, the clowns and the, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, the, so many characters were, were cartoonish during that time period. I mean, people, you know, frequently point to the, you know, the, the more outlandish stuff like Duke Drossy and the goon and that stuff, but they, they weren't central parts of the show. Um, but you know, so many of the, the characters up and down, big and small, were, didn't have that edge of reality. And they found with the Attitude Era a more authentic feel, certainly with the top stars. They felt more, you could identify with them more. They felt more like real people. And the promotion got a lot higher, hotter. And, now it's it, the, the reality is has gone down a lot in terms of the way people think about these characters, and not not in the sense before where they're cartoons because it's not it's not a cartoonish show. It's just the the the, the suffocating scripting and formatting of the shows uh, makes you feel like like the people you don't know the people that that you're watching. I, I don't feel like the the. You know, a lot of people, and from from Roman Reigns, I don't feel like I have any sense for who the real Roman Reigns is, uh, who the real John Cena is, um, even who the real AJ Styles is. They 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 don't feel uh, they don't feel real in terms of their presentation on the show. Did you end up liking Shane McMahon a lot more, or just a little bit more after that documentary? It's it's hard to like him a lot more, Wade. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. There was that embra- there was that embrace. Oh my God! You think I butchered? That other word, whatever that was, uh, embrace, <laughs> the embrace with Shane and Vince, um, you know, where, where it was very emotional, um, the, the, the two, um, reacting with the hug with, with, uh, the kids and, and even Stephanie off to the side there. And it was a cool shot of Linda, like looking up at Shane before he dropped off. I mean, there, it was, it was, I mean, I get why, you know, I get why WWE does it and, and it gives them a chance post-production to show a lot of things that they just don't have a chance to show live. I mean, there's only so many, you can, if you're live, you can only show one, one angle and one version other than a couple replays. So it is cool with so much going on at Mania that, that they do what they do, um, with these documentaries. All right. Uh, let's see. We've got, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I think that, uh, covers it. I think we're to mailbag now. Our, That's true. Uh, our great listeners. All right. Uh, That's sh- not what you said before the show. <laughs> Kayfabe. All right. This goes back to January 18th. Uh, Sean Fox. Hey, Wade and Todd. Hi, Sean. I hope you are both having a great day so far. Wade, hope your throat's doing better. And Todd, you must be loving the Capitals onslaught as, as of late. They're still on an onslaught, aren't they? Oh, yeah. They won 5-0 the last game. I just want to say, first few, Wade, your eloquent response to the gentleman on the Raw Post Show who was upset people were talking, too many too many people talking about social issues and concerns that WWE continually incites and ignores is a reason I'm glad I'm a VIP member. Anyone can just pretend everything is fine and ignore what's in front of the camera and behind it every week. It takes courage and it takes social conscious awareness to stand up when something is wrong. Your response and your willingness to address real-life concerns and challenge those that teach that bullying, racism, sexism, hate, and mistreatment of any kind are acceptable and okay need to be discussed. I feel... The moment we pretend or ignore their existence, we in fact contribute to the spread and acceptance. 
I thank you not just for telling the listeners to just STFU and let these things continue in the name of entertainment or whatever excuses used at the time. Thank you for challenging and allowing free flow of thought with each show and showing respect for everyone you talk to, except for Todd. Oh, no, he didn't say that. On a lighter note, I was just wondering if Todd and Wade, if you caught the highlights from SmackDown of Shane O'Mac, um, that Shane now O'Mac- we know why you didn't get to it. <laughs> yeah, Shane O'Mac is the Vin Diesel of WWE. I had to chuckle seeing the tie-in to the new XXX movie and seeing the inference or implying that Shane's crazy stunts are just as exciting and action-worthy. I will credit Shane, at least on Talking Smack, that he does not have the Stephanie's uh, Stephanie's incessant tendency of belittling or disparaging the talent, trying to get over at every turn. I'm not a fan of, of how he got a mania push last year or his daredevil antics, which make it harder for the regular talent who do not only, who not only work once a year, but at least he seems more willing to help the talent on SmackDown get over and maybe it's just for show, but it is far more entertaining than Stephanie browbeating everybody in existence into oblivion just so she can get her quote heel authority over. Thank you for your time, guys. Hope you enjoy your rest of your week or the next full month. <laughs> Thank you for all your hard work and providing excellent shows and content that make being a VIP member a no-brainer. Sean from St. Albert, Alberta, Canada. Um, but, uh, Todd, I just I saved this because I knew we'd talk about the Mania documentary. I knew we'd end on talking about Shane and the stunt and the different camera angles, and we could go boom right into this question about Shane and the mailbag. So that's uh, Sean why we waited until now. Um, it's just that's why that's why you're a pro. It is that is why I'm a professional. Yes. Um, any reaction to that? Not so much a question, it's kind of commenting on a couple things, but. Yeah, thanks, Ron. I mean, and who would have thought that he was a Canadian with with such a polite letter? I, was, I know. You know? I'm thinking the same thing. Where um, he is from? Yeah, I mean, what he brings up is largely one of the reasons I I find myself defending Shane, along with just thinking that Wade's obsessed with bad mouthing the poor guy. Um, you know, I just think like at the end of the day, like his programs are just about trying to get over other wrestlers. You know, he's had a bunch of memorable feuds over the years, and at the end of the day, he almost always ends up. Uh, pretty much always ends up putting them over really strong and not just, you know, like stars like Kurt Angle or Undertaker or Randy Orton, but, you know, against your, your tests and your Steve Blackman's, you know, he just, he wants to wrestle. He enjoys wrestling. He goes in there and he loses to whoever it is. And it's usually, uh, you know, an entertaining spectacle. I, I, I say leave the, leave, leave the poor guy alone and he loves his family. I mean, I, I don't know why you, you hate that about him, Wade, but you know, he, he does. <laughs> Very good. Um, all right, let's uh, let's go to the next question. Uh, Todd and Wade, this is David from London. We'll see if he can be as polite as uh, Canadians, um, especially from Alberta, Canada, Canadians. Uh, as far as I can tell, I'm the only person advocating this idea. I think the finish of Randy Orton versus Bray Wyatt um, at the, the of the oh, Randy Orton Bray Wyatt WrestleMania main event should be a spin on the legendary finger poke of doom. The original finish between – I want WrestleMania to end like that. Just let's stop there and let's go through it. The original finish between Kevin Nash and Hulk Hogan was horrible. It ended the rivalry between a popular and then cool wolf pack and the decrepit white and black NWO. Uh, worse, it signaled to fans that there was no hope of change in WCW when Men Goldberg's first defeat had been wasted. However, in the context of Randy and Bray, I feel the finish is perfect. Everyone has been so certain from day one that Randy is tricking Bray that I think WWE should use their fans' inertia to shock them. In storyline terms, it makes perfect sense. Randy has sacrificed himself to help Bray multiple times. He's had plenty of opportunity, but he's never attacked his leader. And really, other than the fact that, quote, we all know he's tricking Bray, he's done nothing to foreshadow a turn. I say shock the fans, create a hot heel duo, and save us the most boring and methodical WrestleMania match imaginable. Seriously, go back and watch their No Mercy made event. It was horrible. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. 
I mean, the biggest problem with the finger poke of Doom wasn't its storyline impact, in my opinion. It was that wrestling fans don't like to see big matches built up only to end in a storyline work. Like, it's just not satisfying. And I think that's the, the principal reason the finger poke of doom gets brought up as a, as a really bad idea is just like, you don't want to have matches, you know, you build up a match and then have a guy poke a guy and then just, you know, get a free win over him. It's, it's not, it's not satisfying in the context of, of, of pro wrestling and even less so in WrestleMania, which is your big show of the year. So, I mean, if you're going to do it, you know, as an angle, it's better to do it on a television show than on, on a pay-per-view. So while, while I do think that a, a long, Randy Orton versus Bray Wyatt title match during a long WrestleMania does sound pretty awful. So at least a finger poke would, you know, probably be more pleasing on the evening. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I'm afraid. All right. Uh, up next, Liam says, uh, Hey guys, absolutely love the fix. After seeing that Lucha Underground is going to be added to Netflix, I was wondering, is the only way a wrestling promotion is going to get a slice of the wrestling pie is to have a major streaming service like Netflix or Amazon behind them with money to burn? To me, a 13-week HBO-like wrestling series in winter and summer with a series opening, opening and ending makes a lot more sense than a traditional wrestling schedule. And also, what wrestlers would you sign right now to start a new promotion? Would you throw money at Steve Austin for a last match, have Hogan's last match, or just start clean with someone like Kenny Omega as your top guy? Cheers, guys. Keep up the great work. He sent this to you separately, too. Yeah. Sneaky yeah. Liam. Yeah. Um, with, with any promotion, like, the question is where the, where the money comes from. Um, you know, most pro wrestling promotions historically have made their money doing house shows. Um, then, you know, pay-per-views um, became a, a thing with a few American promotions, and now WWE has their network. Um, so you, you've got to have some sort of model there. And just television money is rough um, unless you have someone that really wants you. I mean, Impact was was uh, was doing okay from that from uh, for a little while. But, I mean, even with them, we saw, you know, you're at the whims of a uh, – of a television network. Same thing with boxing right now, which has become so, uh, you know, uh, dependent on premium cable. And as HBO decides they don't want to pay as much money for boxing right now, it's really causing some problems for boxing promoters. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a problem relying on, on that television network. I mean, you really, um, need someone to want you. And I, I don't see why someone like Netflix or Amazon would be, uh, gung ho about a, uh, a wrestling show that you have to pay good money for. Um, I think you'd need the right, executive like like adam swift at access but i don't know how many of those sorts of executives are going to be out there in the years to come um i guess you only need one but um there i mean preferably two because then you could you know sort of drive up the money but uh you know i I don't think it's any sort of uh i think it's a gamble i mean yeah i mean you I, i don't know um I don't know how successful that, how, what the likelihood is that you'd be able to support a promotion with that, even if, in theory, it sounds like sort of a good idea from a storytelling perspective. You know, having a neat little season, you can sort of set things up and, you know, tell a story over that period. I, I think there's, I think there's merit to that as sort of a format, but that's different than how you make money out of it. As far as talent to build around, like, I mean, the business has changed, like, to where the show is emphasized much more than the match. So unlike 20 years ago where you could build a lot of interest by advertising a dream match, like now that match 
doesn't mean so much if it's not in the right context. I mean, back then, you know, you, you took two big stars who hadn't wrestled each other and fans would be like, Oh, those two guys are going to wrestle each other. I got to check that out. Um, you know, now the fans don't think of that the same way. They don't think, Oh, you know, what if this guy wrestled this guy? What would happen? Because they, they haven't infused the stakes in the matches to where it feels like it really matters for the legacy of each guy who wins the match. So, I don't think spending a lot of money on former stars is the way to go if you're not WWE. I just don't think you're going to gain very much traction. Like, I think you want to invest in someone that has a story moving forward that people can invest in and, and that you can then build meaning into yourself. Um, so I, I'd, you know, if I, you know, if I'm starting something up, I build around the, the, the best fresh talent that's available, you know, sell a genuinely, alternative vision to WWE and, and create a unique platform. I think that's that's the way to go. I think this is a total hunch, but do you think the ship has sailed on that person someday being Paul Heyman? Um, yeah, I think more likely than not. Yeah. Um, I certainly don't I don't think it's a guarantee, but I think more likely than not the ship has sailed there. Yeah, yeah. It just it kind of happens just if you don't talk about it for a while because it was very exciting with maybe he was going to do something with TNA and even then I just I think it was the best option they had it could have been fantastic but there's some things about ECW you look back on and you're like well I hope he wouldn't think that would work today and then you look at what he did in SmackDown you're like oh he probably did what he did then and because of the circumstances and he would change for the times because he keeps up on things so there's reason for optimism but yeah I just I don't know if now in his fifties he's he's necessarily going to be that 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 guy anymore and then i don't know you know i, I bring him up because it's like he was kind of the go-to guy of choice just like bill watts was in the early 90s and sometimes it just um it doesn't doesn't at, at some point it just stops being something that the person is right for hey i don't know if we've had this conversation for me we have wait um so tell me if we had but that's something i i've uh, find myself occasionally thinking about it. and you were right in the middle of it because i mean that that you know that torch talk was you know, key to, to the whole thing going down. Um, the, the, the thought process of, I think, I think the general, uh, the general view on what happened with Bill Watts was, I, I know I've talked about this before. I don't know if I've talked about it on the air with you. So, I mean, maybe people have heard me say this before. Hopefully not. Um, I'm always concerned about that. <laughs> like the, 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 the general view with, with, with Watts was, you know, the business had passed him by. You know, like he was, he was, he was hot. You know, he knew what he was doing in, in the eighties and then he came back in WCW 92 and the business had passed him by all this time had happened and he wasn't what he used to be as a mind. And when I first learned that narrative, it made perfect sense to me because I was a lot younger and 1987 to 1992 was five years, which felt like a lifetime <laughs> when you're younger. It's yeah. like, oh my God, five years, like everything's changed. But as you get older, five years <laughs> feels more like a, at least to me, more like a blink of the eye. Yeah. No, and and so I, I, you know, like the idea of, oh, in f just five years, he lost all, you know, vision of what was going on here doesn't make as much sense intuitively as a premise. And then when I look back at that, you know, the WCW of that time period, um, you know, while it certainly wasn't a hot product, you could see him doing some things well. And I think he got a lot of criticism for, you know, the top rope rule in particular, but and to a lesser extent, the mats, which... 
was a framing idea that was a bad idea, but I think may have colored people's opinions more than perhaps it should have just because, you know, the optics on it were so bad. The idea of removing top rope moves, which had become so popular in the wrestling business. That was like a, you know, the thing you could point to. Oh, there you go. Out of touch. Um, and so basically the question for you is like, are you still very, here I am like, like setting up the conventional wisdom. Do you want to be a boring conventional wisdom guy, Wade? Or do you want to, or do you want to join me in the alternate vision, the exciting, you know, alternate history? Um, you know, I mean, whatever you think, uh, uh, joking aside, do you think that do you generally prescribe to the idea that I think most people hold that the business just passed him by? Or do you think that there were some good ideas that he had there in, in 1992 and it was just a bad setup? He made some wrong moves. Um, you know, obviously the, 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 the Hank Aaron, the interview that was, that was passed along to Hank Aaron, um, you know, showed poor. I own a chicken shop and I don't want to sell fried chicken to blacks. Why should I have to? Lester Maddox was right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, showed, that's, that's hard. That's hard to get through. Yeah. And, and it's funny cause like some of the, you know, like some of the stuff, some of the, I mean, that, that stuff is obviously was offensive then and offense, offensive now, but it at least there was sort of at least a, um, uh, you know, there was at least like a a a, a, a principle behind it. There was a libert- that- a libertarian philosophy that drove his indelicate, inappropriate public comments. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, at least you know you could you could uh, you, you, that stuff you can at least. I mean, view in that light if you want to, but like, I mean, then there's other stuff which didn't make as much of a big deal then, but like, but like that age is even worse, which is like, hey, you know, wait, you know, I hate these facts, you hate these facts, like, God. can't we just agree that we should be able to discriminate against these facts that we hate? Um, like oh. that, that has aged. Um, I, I would, I would argue worse than the, uh, I should be able to, uh, sell fried chicken to the people that I want to. Anyway. Well, real quick, cause it, the nuance with, with Bill wasn't that he didn't like black people. He liked and respected black people, and I don't think he was a racist. He just felt that racists should be able to go about their business and and discriminate. And yes, and 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 I can understand his bitterness at it. I mean, if you listen to the audio, he's he got himself very worked up. He's, oh God, wait, I got really worked up there. Okay, he had to calm himself down. It just it was a long interview. He got on a rant and he got too comfortable. Um, and and. Too comfortable and too lazy with his intellectual argument and went to some examples that were, that doomed him once he got into a corporate environment and showed a, a, an inability to, to, to play the game at even the most basic level. I mean, in a way there's a comparison to, well, go, go with your question. I'll, you were, you were about to say something. Yeah. So basic, basic question is, do you think that, that, that Bill Watts was just behind the times and that was what did him in? Or do you think that there was some hope there and he just made some bad moves? And if he had, if he'd made a little calculations, calculations a little differently here and there, it might, it might actually have been able to work out. I, I think that the being behind the times is not how I, would summarize it, and if someone wants to find a quote, I will apologize for taking the lazy way out and saying he was behind the times. I think that it's sort of like we talked about with Vince in the XFL. He, he Bill Watts was used to running things his way and having people around him who supported that and covered up, covered up and fixed things that 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 he just plowed through and did and, and in a wrong way that caused some damage, and he was insulated from accountability. And it it worked when it was unfettered, when it was unchecked. It, it just 
So he gets into a corporate environment and the part of the business that where that phrase works is he didn't like the guaranteed contracts. He didn't like not having complete total power over his wrestlers because he felt he, that he needed that leverage in order to create the incentive for them to do what he wanted them to do that he thought would work. And in the end, I think he would argue and probably and has that his way of doing things was incompatible with a corporate structure that he walked into in WCW. I don't know if this part he admit, admit to or not, but there was a, a stubbornness and narrow-mindedness and an inflexibility that was inexcusable because he was a smart guy who wasn't that far removed from success, but he needed to take some pride in adjusting in it, he needed to, I, I wanted him to take pride in showing that he could succeed even with some obstacles that were different than, than what he was used to or that he hadn't encountered before based on working within a larger company that frustrated him. And he did deal with, oh, I was going to say, I was going to say like Van Hammer. <laughs> yes. Well, yes, exactly. Um, I think that he, there was a level of, 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 bombast my way or the highway and and an outlaw aspect to him that surprised me when he got there um, based on the person that I got to know on the phone before that in that I thought that he would that I thought there was a side of him that would say all right this these are the contracts that I have these are the wrestlers I'm dealing with this is how wrestling has, has, this is what the, not that wrestling has changed, because I don't think wrestling changes. I think what fans have seen dictates certain things working or not working that would not, that worked and didn't work in one context, but now fans have seen five years more of wrestling and a lot of other styles, and you have to adjust your thinking to that. What worked in New Orleans in 85 doesn't work in, in, on national television in 92. Um, and so, I don't think that part he didn't adjust to as well as I thought. And I think that's where when people say the business passed him by, I think it was just, it's, it's, it's a little shorthand for he, he wanted things to be a certain way and that reality didn't exist. And he tried to, uh, to, to force a certain reality that, that couldn't be forced into happening. And when it wasn't going well, he didn't react at all well to that. So he, it, it's not that he was a one-trick pony, but he was someone who, who was, who surprisingly, I would say, was only willing to approach, uh, executing good ideas under one set of circumstances. And he got very flustered and unprofessional when those circumstances were not exactly how he wanted them. And he didn't show the patience or the finesse to use his intellect and, frankly, his charm, too, to change things from within with a little bit more patience. All right. Now, what category do I fall into with my more nuanced answer? Am I I more where your thinking is or is is that or not? I'm not sure. 
I mean, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in the middle. Okay. I mean, if I, you know, if if I start advocating people, you know, get uh, get shot for uh, for answers that have too much nuance, I'll be one of the first ones in line. So I can't go too far in, uh, yeah. in, in criticizing well, a nuanced answer. Well, and that's why I asked you because I, even though there were a lot of words to it, I didn't want to make it seem like I was hedging or not committing. I, I but I do think there's nuance to it. I mean, I so I wanted to know if it. If it seemed like I was hedging or I had a, a no, an no. idea of it's a complicated situation, but I, I, I'll add this. In retrospect, more so than at that time, I, I have more respect for certain things product wise that he was trying to do. Um, but he picked some of the wrong things to do <laughs> like I, it's, it's almost like it, it's it's weird but there's a parallel with the torch talk he's a libertarian he chose in terribly indelicate ways to express uh, a philosophical point of view of indelicate is just a really nice nice way of putting offensive and and inappropriate um also and it was a whole range of those and he had a philosophy in wrestling that he wanted to execute and he had a really indelicate, and I would even say clumsy, maybe is a good word to describe both situations, a clumsy way of going about it. No more moves off the top rope because that's a way for heels to generate heat. And we need ways for heels to generate heat by cheating. So we need to set a, a certain bar with a certain set of rules. And I think a lot of the things that I advocate for now are, I hope, modernized, context-driven visions for what Bill Watts would not, not along with and agree with now in 92 and 85 in that you have to have some sense of order structure and authority so that all the other things that you do have this foundation to play off of. And I think that's what Watts was trying to establish by taking the mats away and barring the, the top rope moves. And he also looked around at just the sheer ridiculousness of what Jim Hurd had done um, and Kip Fry had done. And it was just like, are, are you freaking kidding me? What, what, what went on here the last few years? Um, and and it was just ridiculous to him, and he wasn't he wasn't good at dealing with that. But I, I, I to say the business passed him by I, is oversimplifying because what he wanted to do philosophically made sense. But by not following the product for five years, I think there was an aspect of him being behind the times because certain things you you couldn't go back on. You you could not stop a babyface from jumping off the top rope because it wasn't a heel move anymore. It wasn't the heel climb to the top rope to cheat with a, with a knee, uh, with a knee drop to Greg Anya's leg, and now he's injured and out for six weeks. It's a flashy move that baby faces do because they're more they're more flashy athletes, and that's what fans like. He missed that, and a lot happened in that five years or eight years. So, in that sense, I do think he fell behind the times. So I don't know if that muddies it even more, but it, it's a mix of it's a mix of the oversimplified version that you're refuting. But some of that is true, and that I do. Think I, I don't even right. know that I'm necessarily refuting. I was sort of framing it no as doubt. sort of what I think is the, and I was sort. Of, I guess I sort of satirically did, but yeah. like I, I, I think there's merit to 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 to, to that idea. So, yeah. um, I, 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 I don't, I, I, I find myself more. I'm more like thinking like that. I was agreeing with what I think most people were thinking of it. And over time, I've sort of been thinking, well, maybe it was more this. Um, you know, I, I'm not necessarily even on, on, on one side or another. It's okay. just sort of yeah. something I, I have, you know, sort of thought about over over time. I hope I've cleared it up for you then, not muddied it more. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, now it's, now it's all clear. Okay, good.
All right, so we'll uh, wrap up part two there and come back with a part three. More mailbag and some USC conversation in part three. Uh, okay, Don from Los Angeles. Do you think there's a risk of fans turning on Goldberg if he squashes Owens and wins the title at Fastlane? When Goldberg initially came back, there was always a question mark regarding how the fans were going to react towards him, especially at Survivor Series in Toronto. But with the exception of that Heyman promo debacle in Minnesota, Goldberg has been the most over babyface we've seen in years. But I think WWE is getting too comfortable and too confident at this point that Goldberg will always be cheered under any circumstances. Fans love seeing the spectacle of Goldberg versus Brock as a special attraction, and both being part-timers played a factor as well, in my opinion. But KO has a very strong fan base, and there are fans today who would prefer seeing younger full-timers getting the spotlight, with the exception of Babyface, of Babyface Roman, over the old-timers. And Goldberg squashing KO and taking the title could trigger some resentment among fans. Plus, I think Goldberg versus Lesnar really doesn't need the Undertaker, excuse me, the Universal title, and the angle on Raw to set up the Goldberg KO match felt forced. I think it's possible um, that there's backlash, but that it's unlikely. Um, I think that people like Goldberg. I think they like the story they're telling with Goldberg and Brock Lesnar. Um, and I, I don't think that, and particularly since the the big peak is still coming with Goldberg and Lesnar, I don't think people will get too down on on on. Owens being sort of a uh, an intermediate step, um, given that that's still coming. Um, now, if they keep Goldberg around and they do something like that in uh, in six months from now, then then I think it's it's uh, the potential grows at that point in time. Okay, and uh, he also says uh, thanks for reading and answering my question. As always, appreciate your work. My yearly VIP subs about to re- be renewed next month. Looking forward to great contents for another year and years to come. Thank you, Don. Appreciate it. Uh, okay. Uh, Craig from Green Bay. My topics of concern today, uh, is a cruiserweight division in 205 Live. I feel the division has been mishandled in part by repeating the same recipe that helped NXT grow by just having no names in the division. Having the cruiserweight wrestlers on Raw is no longer a good idea. The division should be exclusive to 205 Live and be different than all the WWE booking as they and Vince are using the wrestlers in ways too similarly to Raw and SmackDown. It would have been great to have everybody be babyfaces to start out. Having handshakes before and after matches seems to beg that. Plus, having matches with spots would help the live audience stay at the arena by having something to look forward to and be engaged and compelling to cheer. It could have been a groundswell type of growth with that approach. It would also be necessary for the SmackDown that preceded 205 Live to not do any spot monkey matches and use more match psychology and squashes. It would have kept this form, I would have kept this format for 205 Live until Neville came back, giving him more heel heat and remaining the only heel who eventually becomes and stays champion for a long time giving all babyfaces something to chase until the special babyface came along to carry the division in lieu of Neville, especially before he gets stale. That'd be a way to get the show to the next level by having more diversity and a main event aura at the conclusion of each episode. I feel the wrestlers would continue to be challenged by having different matches with spots and using their creativity to prevent staleness in spot-type matches, making the Cruiserweight division and 205 Live a desired place to land and feel like they've arrived at the pinnacle of the industry, where they didn't think they'd have a fair chance in the land of the Giants. As for Neville currently, he should speak as few words as possible. His promos that got, get long-winded expose his limitations as a money promo. Besides, it would suit his heel persona better. Your thoughts? I think the the the, the key point that, that that's made is that you want to have some sort of unique identity for um, for a division for this division in particular, in that. I think it's some divisions you can be fine with just sort of doing things the same way you would, would, would with other divisions. But I think given the history of smaller wrestlers in wrestling who, that, that typically haven't been framed as highly as, uh, 
is the larger wrestlers. I think you want some sort of way to signal to people this is something important. This is something different. This is something special. And it, it you, you could hypothetically do it if you just had better people there. But as we talked about, like, I think they've got better people in the heavyweight division than in the, the cruiserweight division. Um, in terms of overall marketability of what people like in wrestling. So uh, you want some way to make people think, oh, the cruiserweight division is something different, is something special. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the idea of laying it out more based on athleticism and having, uh, having it framed in a different way than the other, than the other feuds is one way of doing that. I think there are a bunch of different ways of doing it, but I think, the overall idea of let's give this thing a unique identity is a sound one. I, I, I agree with that. I don't know how much you could do with the wrestlers that they had for much of the time they've had this cruiserweight division. I just, I don't think it's a roster that was going to get you very far. Um, but I think it probably would have had a better chance if you, if you did, um, take some of those ideas and we'll see what it, we'll see how it does now that they've got, um, an infusion of talent. I think, I think it certainly has a, uh, a higher likelihood of, of succeeding in the, uh, in the, uh, in the months to come. And I mean, who knows? I mean, if they can, if they can give some reason for people to, to, um, to view that 205 live show as, as special that I think they still could, um, they could still build that thing up to where it has a cult following. And I think the, the simplest way to do that is to have, you know, one match that's designed at least, you know, at least one match that's designed to be a standout match every week on that show. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I think the more, you know, the more niche, uh, WWE network audience is more apt to like. And I don't feel like they're trying to do that. Um, to say, oh, th- you know, these two guys are going to have a really good match on, on 205 Live. You know, we're going to give them 15 minutes and hopefully they'll, they'll, uh, you know, they'll, ch- they'll, they'll tear the house down. I think that's, you really, I think really you're going to have to do something like that in order to, um, to breathe life in, in, into that show. What about trying, adjusting the content of SmackDown? to make 205 Live stand out more, which I think Craig is advocating? I mean, it would depend on, on how far you went with it. I mean, I don't feel like SmackDown as it is, is a, you know, is a particularly spectacular in-ring show. So I, I don't think you'd need to, um, need to modify things too much. I, I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want to make AJ Styles matches worse in order to give a little bit to 205 Live. Um, but I don't know that you'd need to do that much to, 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 to define 205 Live differently from SmackDown. I think, um, I think just the nature of what, you know, of what SmackDown is right now already sort of lends itself to that. And how about Neville not over speaking? I don't have a strong opinion one way or another. I mean, I think it's his promos since he, he, uh, turned have been better than I would have expected. I, I, I agree they're not great. Um, it becomes difficult in WWE in 2017 to get over without saying a lot, um, particularly since he's trying to establish a new character right now. Um, 
I, if he does end up being a rival for Austin Aries, I think you, you have to be careful because Austin Aries is so much better of a talker that you don't want to make him look bad just by Austin Aries sort of talking circles around him. Um, so I think you'd want to protect what he said more. So I think, I think at the point that he's feuding with Austin Aries, that would be an occasion to have him talk less, um, and make sure that everything he's saying is particularly strong. All right. Uh, up next, uh, oh, we're back to Sean from St. Albert, Alberta, Canada. He emailed again, despite us taking so long to get to his previous question. Uh, well, he may have resent the same question since we didn't respond to it the first time. Uh, perhaps, well, let's, let's see. <laughs> um, he didn't. First off, sadly, I tried to speak with you, Wade, when you had John Arezzi on earlier during the midweek livecast. My Skype failed me when you tried to take my call, which sucked because I really wanted to thank you and John for the retro audio shows and all the work, insight, and perspective that can be looked at in today's version of wrestling looking back at that period of time, including the Bill Watts period. Hopefully my email will work and Todd can give his perspective and thoughts on the XFL and if it had been more of a success, just how many more CTE lawsuits would Vince and company be dealing with now? I watched the XFL documentary, which did not seem to touch very seriously on just how much Vince didn't understand football and its rules and reasoning for the rules. With his crazy or ignorant approach, changing rules, and creating true chaos in the field. I'm just glad, as a CFL fan and a fan from my hometown Edmonton Eskimos, that he did not buy the league. Thanks again for all your hard work, and Todd, don't let that bully Wade push you around like JBL. Uh, ha. Seriously, you guys make a great team, and your shows are the best to listen to each week. Thanks, John. I I, uh, I try my best. Wait, wait, can be, wait, can be pretty pretty mean. Um, like earlier in the show, where he, he made fun of me and, and and said that my my rapport was very bad. <laughs> it, it hurt my feelings, um, but I recovered. Uh, as far as the uh, as far as the XFL goes, I mean, as I frequently point out with the uh, the NFL concussions lawsuit relative to other leagues. The big key with the NFL concussions lawsuit was the NFL was overtly covering up research they were getting um, that suggested the dangers of the game. And that while while there is also an argument to be made about just the danger the danger of you know a lot of these sports in general, it's it's a different claim because at the point that you're you're you're, you're suing over um, a dangerous game it then becomes very relevant that the people go into it knowing what knowing that it's a violent game there's an assumption of risk with a dangerous activity like that it becomes harder to uh to craft a suit and to win a suit when going in the people know what they're getting into and the the thing that distinguished the NFL was that they were making it less likely that the players would know the dangers they were getting themselves into. And that's where, you know, the, the huge, uh, settlement came in. Um, so the XFL, um, I mean, I guess if it's stuck around for a longer period of time, um, could have been responsible for that sort of thing, but there's nothing to suggest that they did during the time that they were there. So that wouldn't, um, uh, that, that aspect of it wouldn't be present where the XFL is different than a lot of these leagues was, you know, how overt they were in marketing um, that sort of violence. And that was one of the things the documentary highlighted was the way that they were just sort of celebrating the potential of injury 
to these players. And I think that's something that could be used against them. I mean, I, th- I think if they had introduced think- a wrecking ball, I think it probably would have been used against them. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, wrecking ball, wrecking ball and human violence is, uh, is problematic. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I do think that there's, that there's something there, but I don't necessarily think that it, um, it would have it would have gone that far because while while the XFL was was highlighted for a lot of the celebration of violence, the NFL was doing a lot of that stuff too, and that wasn't that wasn't central to the lawsuit against them. I mean, they they marketed you know videotapes based around the biggest hits. I remember you know one of my favorite uh, video games that I, that I would play with my friends in high school was NFL Blitz, which was this like ultra. I mean, uh, uh, this. Everything about it, if you look back at it, is, 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 is amusing in so many different ways. Essentially the premise, Wade, is you had these like gigantic, uh, you know, jacked up, uh, football players. So they all look like they were on like, you know, like the most massive amount of steroids you could possibly take. They look like, you know, they all look like the warlord. Um, you know, and, and the, the, the play, the, the game was just complete chaos. You could lay out everybody with these gigantic hits. After the play was over, you could continue attacking your opponent. So you could, you know, you were doing like leg drops on the guy who's already been tackled. Um, you're knocking them out of bounds. The whole thing was just like this gigantic violent spectacle, which had the NFL name on it and all the licensed players. It was just like a gigantic celebration of, um, of football in the most violent light possible. And the NFL did stuff like that. So, I mean, the XFL, and that was right during the time period of the XFL. So, um, the, you know, so the, the XFL being marketed very heavily as, as violent, I think would have potential posed problems for, for, for lawsuits, but the, the, the covering up is a big key and, and I don't know how, ne- how far it necessarily would have gone because of the, uh, the lack of that, which was the, the key for the NFL suit. All right. Very good. Uh, Craig also emailed and said, uh, hi, Todd. I don't hi, want to put pressure on you to say hello back. Uh, <laughs> during last night's talking smack, I popped for a Nikki Bella segment for the first time in a very long time when Natalia bumped Nikki's head on the bottom of the glass table. My disdain for Nikki, you'll, you love Craig now, is due to my observation of her being so fake and overproduced, even minus her boob job. She comes across to me as trying too hard to be something that she ultimately is not. I think she's trying to be what Brie is in real life, but can come across successfully as a wrestling character. Nikki is not a good baby face at all and never has been and has brought, and has bought into her own hype. The verbiage used in the promos with Carmella and Natty are only a smokescreen to make it seem like she's smarter, more confident, and thicker-skinned than she really is. It's a pile of pretentious crap that can be <laughs> off WWE wrestling shows and only on E, as that's where it truly belongs. Your thoughts, Todd? Todd, before you answer that, I have a question. Who do you think has a higher IQ, Brie Bella or Nikki Bella? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> no, it's just, it, well, they already it's already been on, on, a, on a show that I'm assuming you didn't watch. Oh yeah, that's that, that that would be a safe bet. Um, <laughs> so they they so they did a they did IQ tests. Yes. Um. Okay. Uh. Yeah. I'm not I'm not a big believer in in IQ tests. Um. Anyway. Uh. Hmm. Better an IQ test, Nikki or Bree? I, I I would think they probably did it. Well, I mean I mean it might even be a work anyway. So I'm not I'm not even gonna guess. <laughs> it could be a work. Um. I I would have thought Bree would score higher. Because one, she comes across smarter, and two, she's with Daniel Bryan, and Daniel Bryan seems like a smart guy, and I don't think he'd be with somebody dumber than Nikki. Now, um, 
<laughs> Whereas John Cena, I could see him being, you know, for various reasons, uh, with, with somebody like Nikki. So, uh, so, but I, I was surprised. Uh, I don't remember the exact score, but it was something like, uh, uh, Bree scored a 99, a little bit below average, and Nikki scored like a 107 or something like that. It was, um, so I was a little surprised. Bree was, was below okay, average. Very similar. Nikki was above average. It, it came across to me as legit, but that's what I love about reality shows is you're just not sure. I, I just think if you're going to work IQ tests, you would probably aim for both of your stars to do somewhere at least in the teens. Um, and, or at least both above a hundred. So, uh, not have somebody under average and, cause I didn't see a storyline reason for doing that. So it seemed, it seemed authentic to me. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you don't believe it. What, what, what about IQ tests do you not believe in? Um, I just like having taken lots of tests over my life. Like I thought a lot of other tests, um, seemed, uh, a better indication of intelligence. Um, frankly, intelligent uh, IQ tests, um, I, and I haven't, I took one ages ago. It just seemed a lot easier. Whereas a lot of other tests seemed like they were a lot deeper in terms of what they were looking for in, um, in, 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 in broad intelligence. So, just yeah, my 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 two sons. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. Um, okay. So, to his question, if you remember, what was the? Uh, oh, oh, Nikki and Nikki. Uh, I mean, it was more just a burial of Nikki than anything else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 my issues with Nikki are that I don't think she's a very talented wrestler or talker or personality. Um, and she got a big push in spite of that. Um, I don't really feel like I have a good sense for who she is. Um, other than not a very good wrestling character who gets a big push. Um, so I, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, as far as like sort of the, the way she carries herself or, um, sort of the production of her or whatnot, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how much any of that would necessarily make that much of a difference. I feel like they've tried to do a lot of different things with her, and I don't think very much of it is, has succeeded um, because I just don't think she's very good. <laughs> I, I looked up the IQs, by the way, in our, our Total Divas recap um, by uh, Sarah, and it was 99 for Brie and 113 for Nikki. So they did – if it was a work, they put one of them in the teens, um, and if it was legit, then – so be it. Um, this is the quote from the, this is a quote of the show though when they were building up to it, Todd. Um, Bree said, I am the smarter Bella. I can care less if I beat her in this IQ test. <laughs> <laughs> um, then she said this. The unfortunate thing for Nicole and I is that we're not really trained in education. <laughs> to which Nikki said, did you really just say that? <laughs> Which made the results of the IQ test less surprising later. So, well, that's part of it too. Is like the IQ test is designed to like that you don't need to really have any education or know right. anything. It's right. sort of that's true. You know, it's just designed to be uh, sort of. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess sort of like just sort of raw processing of little bits of information that I don't think necessarily. Uh, yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, wait, Who cares? You. I, I could talk to you for this for 20 minutes, but let's save it for a car ride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> especially two and a half hours into this. Um, all right. Uh, we're not going to get to every mailbag question, but we're certainly getting to all of them that were sent in before today. 
and the ones that are in particular dated. Um, there is a uh, an MMA question, and we'll use that to transition into the uh, USC pre- review and preview. Uh, Jonathan Jackson says, hey, guys, I hope all is well. I know you've already dis- discussed this fight, but, Todd, what are your thoughts on Woodley and Thompson's first fight, and what are your thoughts on their second fight? And he actually signed it. Uh, love, Jonathan. Uh I thought that uh, the Woodley got the better of the first fight pretty clearly, um, even if the nature of the scoring system meant that it would be closer on points. Um, so I, I would prefer the Damian Maya fight against uh, against Woodley than the Thompson rematch. With that said, I don't count Thompson out the second time because he was doing better more often than Woodley. Um, it's just that Thompson, when he was ahead, um, was only barely ahead, while as whereas when Woodley was ahead, he was just obliterating Thompson. So. If Thompson can find a way to avoid being obliterated <laughs> a few times in in the fight, um, he may be able to sort of, you know, get the better of the exchanges by a small margin over a long period and win the fight that way. Okay, up next, uh, Dave from Galway, Ireland. I was a lapsed member of the Torch and followed Todd over from the Observer in your content each week. Um, Thanks, Dave. Wade claims there's nobody like that, so, you know, it's nice to have someone say that. <laughs> Actually, I've, it, he, he, there's a word left out here, though. Was a lapsed member of the Torch and followed Todd over from the Observer and your content each week. I don't know if he said, and I hate your content each week, I love your content each week, or, or what. That seems like there's a missing word. I'll email David and see if he had more to say. Um, my question is about the McGregor versus Mayweather rumored matchup. Can Todd shed some light on boxing's Oliak that Connor is trying to bring into play to force the fight? Given Todd's legal expertise, does he ultimately think McGregor can bypass the UFC in the making of the match? Okay, so the the key to the Ali Act in this context is that it prohibits promoters in boxing from holding as much power as promoters hold in MMA. Um, so the idea is that if Connor is boxing, he's covered by the Ali Act, and his UFC contract can't apply because... Dana White and, and the UFC aren't allowed in boxing to hold as much power as a promoter as they do in MMA. The problem is that his MMA contract has a clause that says that he can't do boxing. And that seems like a fully reasonable clause to me. Like, you know, the logical extension of Connor's argument would be it's pretty much impossible to enforce a non-compete clause for boxing. You know, like if an NFL player decides that he wants to box during the offseason and he's trying to use the Ali Act to get around that NFL contracts prevent football players from participating in dangerous off-the-field activities, then, you know, the the, the, um, the, the, the NFL players would be allowed to just go box in the offseason because the NFL wouldn't have the authority – to 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 dictate the way that um to dictate the terms of their players' boxing careers, and it's a little bit differently because uh, a little bit different in the sense that like presumably Dana White and the UFC would want to promote Connor's fights, but they haven't necessarily said that to this point. They'd just be saying, "Hey, look, we've got this MMA contract that says that you can't box," um, and that doesn't have to. That, that's different than saying, "Hey." We want to take Connor into the boxing sphere. Now let's talk about how we are going to promote those fights, which to me would be a completely different equation. So, no, I don't think Connor will be able to bypass the UFC to make the fight with Connor on his own, uh, to Connor on Connor's own, to make the fight with Floyd on his own. 
Um, and, and honestly, I'd be surprised if Connor ends up bringing the issue to court because I think the odds of his winning aren't high enough. And I think it's ultimately posturing for negotiation, negotiation purposes. I think he's throwing this out there to try to get leverage. I don't think he actually thinks he's going to be able to essentially invalidate that clause in his contract. Cause I just, I don't think that that's the sort of clause that a, a court would, um, would want to strike down, um, in the context of, of, of the Ali Act. I just don't think that what, that's what the Ali Act is there for to allow, you know, MMA fight. Well, I mean, obviously it's not there for MMA fighters to be able to box, but like it, it's, that's not, it, it's two different things that are operating there. You know, the, the, the desire in, in the Ali Act to prohibit boxing promoters from gaining too much control. Um, is is a different concern than the idea of promoters in another sport being able to say, if you've signed an exclusive contract with me, you can't go participate in other sports at the same time. Um, I don't think it's a winner of an argument. Okay. Yep. All right. And uh, end with this one. This is also from Don from Los Angeles. Chan Sung Young, the Korean Zombie, or Du Ho Choi. Young was impressive last Saturday. It would seem like a more likely candidate going forward if he can beat a higher, uh, beat higher rank fighters. But after that incredible fight for Sukup Swanson in terms of popularity and also marketability, Duho has better potential to be a bigger star in draw. But the mandatory military duty in South Korea is playing against Duho, whereas Young just came off it. Um, Todd, your thoughts? I think you left off part of the question. Um, Oh, uh, there's a bold part at the top. A, a very biased MMA question. In your opinion, which fighter is more likely to get a title fight before the other? Did I say that? No. Okay. Um, but now you did. Yes. Well, um, thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I asked, you answered. <laughs> I think I think Duho Choi is more likely to get a title shot. Um, uh, Zombie lost his last title shot. Um, lost... Well, I mean, obviously he lost his last title shot. He's not the champion. He lost in his last fight before this fight in a title fight. Um, so I think he's less likely to get back in the title picture into the, in the immediate future. While Choi, I think, gained a lot even in defeat against Cub Swanson. I think Choi is definitely going to get a title shot at some, some point. Um, Zombie may, but I think if he does, it'll probably be a little bit longer. So, my uh, my guess would be Troy. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's finish up with some uh, UFC talk. And speaking of which, look back at last weekend. We did, we, we we missed one question. I, I have a, a note here of, oh. of uh, a question about books or something. Oh yeah. Well, just because we're running so long, and that was the least dated of all the questions, I thought I would save that. But since you made a note on it, I know we have to cover it. Well, the, yeah, I, the, the reason I brought it up was that I, I actually hadn't made a note of it here, yeah. and, like, like I would have to keep the note around because, like, I actually thought about it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I mean. Let's do it. <laughs> I just looked at it and I thought, well, that, since we are running long and we answered all the others, this is not dated at all, um, so we can save it for next week. But next week, if we're short on questions, I'll just throw an alert on Twitter and we'll get 20. Uh-oh. I don't know. Um, okay, yeah, here's a question. Romeo from New York City, do you think Undertaker or Vince McMahon will ever write a book also, who hasn't written a book yet that you think would be just as intriguing? Okay, so Undertaker, no, I don't think Undertaker will write a book. Um, Vince, and why I not, think real quick before movements. I mean, he's just been so protective of his character that I mean, he he really doesn't seem to like the idea of pulling the curtain back. 
And I mean, I guess it's conceivable that he'd change after retiring, but I don't think he will. I think he'll just want to protect that character and, uh, and, and not, you know, not go too far. I mean, that, 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 it'll be interesting, you know, when he goes in the Hall of Fame, what he does there, whether he, um, whether he, he's, he speaks, uh, you know, all the way, uh, you know, all the way back as, as himself or whether he, you know, still cloaks himself a little bit there. That, yeah. That'll be a very interesting, uh, Hall of Fame speech when he does that. I like that term, uh, cloak. That's good. <laughs> no, seriously, that's uh, a good way to put it. With Vince, I think it's, I think it's unlikely that he'll write a book, but I think it's conceivable. And, um, it would be hard to top Undertaker or Vincent Land for intrigue. I mean, those, you know, books by either of those guys would be fascinating. So I think those definitely, uh, jump out. As far as, as who else would make for, for a, uh, a, a very interesting book, I mean, so many have been written that, um, you know, that there aren't that many candidates, but I, 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 I thought about it um, and scribbled down some yeah. things. Paul Paul Heyman seems like an obvious answer. Uh, Conan, if he put in the effort and had the memory for it, could be fascinating for all the behind the scenes because he's been, you know, a, a player in a lot of different promotions and has been, you know, behind a lot of behind the scene behind the scenes machinations and promotional intrigues. I think that would be interesting. Uh translated versions of a bunch of Japanese wrestlers would be fascinating. You know, Noki, Choshu, Liger, Kobashi, Mudo, I mean so many. Um I, I, that's not gonna happen, but that that would be great. Um I don't know if he'd be up for it. Um but you know Don Leo Jonathan experienced so much in the business and he's one of the last you know, last guys around from that period, you know, where he main evented so many different places and worked with so many big stars that, you know, if he was inspired and up for writing a book, I could imagine that, you know, him having a really interesting story to tell. Uh, Gene Okerlund, uh, would, I, I think, write an interesting book. Um, John Cena, if he was honest and sort of, you know, like, like, I mean, sort of a different guy, but like Undertaker, like if he sort of pulled back the curtain and sort of gave a, a real sense for who he is, um, as opposed to sort of a, uh, you know, a, a typical athlete, you know, ghost written autobiography, which I can totally imagine John Cena oh God, doing, yeah. like, you know, just like one of those, you know, fake autobiographies by, that, that all of the, you know, major athletes have that don't really give you any insight into who they are. You know, Triple H, if he, uh, if he wrote something that was similarly, if it was honest. And I, I, I could imagine, I, I can imagine Triple H writing a really interesting book. I don't think he'd necessarily be like, uh, John Cena. I think he'd more likely to just say, I won't bother with it. But like, I, it strikes me that if he wrote a book, he'd really want to, um, you know, to frame things his way. And the I, I can imagine. The interviews kind of tip, tip the hat in that regard. Yeah, so I can imagine it being just sort of a fascinating book, like a like an Ole Anderson or a, or a Bill Watts, where you know he's sort of you can you know you have to you have to look you have to take into account who is who is writing this book and and where the perspective is coming from. But it would be fascinating um, all the same. So those are some thoughts. Uh, Sean Waltman does a lot of pod. He's done a lot of interviews with me over the years and a lot of interviews with me on the podcast. But he's also done a lot of his own stuff. Um, if he sat down and really wrote about it, I know how much he thinks about the industry, how much he has experienced, um, good and bad. Um, in term, he's been around so many big names and he's smart and perceptive and observant 
and has uh, is also unlike John Cena and, and, and perhaps Triple H, although I, I wouldn't judge Triple H too much because I think the ESPN interviews are, you know, part of a work that is ongoing. Um, and it doesn't mean that he wouldn't, in a different setting, be introspective. And uh, But Sean Waltman is, is nothing but honest. I won't say to a fault because I don't think he's honest to a fault, but I think he's honest without without the usual uh, uh, protection that people put up uh, for themselves. And so Sean just really, really, really going all in on something like that, I think is somebody who'd be fascinating given the, the major people, major figures he's gotten to know really well in, in different eras, um, including Vince McMahon and Triple H among two, two among many. There you go. Uh, but he didn't ask me. <laughs> Um, so why are you volunteering your information, Wade? That's outrageous. <laughs> it is outrageous. That should be the name of your book, by the way, Outrageous. <laughs> um, what about Todd Martin? Um, there's somebody else who was more kind of, you know, it's like a Gene Oakland person, somebody who's just hung around and like like a Charles Robinson. Um, you know, somebody who's just been around a long time, been around a lot of big names, kept his ears open. Um, you know, and I, I don't know if he... Is somebody who would would it would be shallow and 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 or or really insightful and and but that be interesting for somebody who's just around a lot of big moments. Um, Justin Roberts, by the way, is coming out with a book, and I'm expecting a copy any any day now. Um, and he was on the live cast, and I thought there he's he was what, speaking to people who just kind of hanging around and watching and listening and experienced a lot. I think he's, his book has a chance to be very interesting, uh, when that comes out, uh, a few weeks from now, uh, to the public. So there might be, uh, a good one there that we'll be reviewing on this very show, Todd. Yes, if we ever get a, 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 a copy. It's funny how you, you keep these books from me. It's terrible. <laughs> I, I want my copy too. I, I'm checking the mailbox for it. It's supposed to come any day now, so. Uh, yeah, the, the release isn't until, uh, until April, April so it'll yep. still be a little bit for, uh, the, uh, the general release. Yes. Well, he, he messaged me. He's like, did you get your copy? I'm like, no, I didn't. He's like, ah. So I think he, he's eager to get feedback on it. And I think he's, uh, I think he's thinking it'll create some buzz. So we'll see. Uh, okay. UFC last weekend, uh, Todd, and then we'll uh, move to the preview. Yeah, uh, Korean Zombie, I didn't think it was necessarily looking that great, um, against Dennis Bermudez, although to be fair, I mean, he hadn't fought in a while, so he was sort of, you know, getting a feel for it in, in the early going, one would think, but then he, you know, knocked out Bermudez, um, in, in emphatic fashion, so it was a, uh, a solid finish for him, and, and nice to see, because you'd like, you'd like, uh, well, I mean, I shouldn't speak for anyone else. You can like whatever you'd like people, but, um, I mean, he's, he's a guy that sort of has a unique, uh, persona and has exciting fights. So it's fun, uh, it's fun to, uh, think of, of the possible, you know, fights that he can, he can take on if he's competing at a high level. Um, Felice Herrig really killed the, uh, Alexa Grasso hype train. Um, Grasso just, I mean, she just doesn't look as good as, as people were thinking she might be. And, uh, you know, Herrig to her credit, I mean, she looked, she looked impressive in her own right. Um, and, you know, she talked about how, she had issues training for, for some of her recent fights, and this was more in line with what she's capable of. But still, I mean, they clearly had some pretty big hopes for Grasso, and, uh, and this was not the sort of performance that I think they were looking for, obviously, um, from her. The highlight of the show, um, 
I thought, and I think most people thought, was the Jessica Andrade fight against uh, Angela Hill. Just a great fight. Um, Andrade is, is a very entertaining fighter to watch, and Hill turned in a, a solid performance herself. I mean, that, that Andrade fight against Ioana and Jacek for the, uh, for the women's strawweight title, that could be a really fun fight. I mean, Ioana's much better technically, but she likes range a lot. I mean, that's, that's something she really uses a lot in her fights, and Andrade is a, a pressure fighter, and it's it's interesting how uh, Ioana will deal with that. I mean, I think it's I think it's possible that it could be you know it could be a perfect matchup for Ioana if Ioana is just able to consistently counter her as she moves in and uh, and takes her apart. But I could also imagine uh, Andrade's uh, pressure giving Ioana trouble. She can't you know set up her kicks from distance. She can't. Um, get into the flow that she wants because Andrade is always in her face and see that causing problems for, for her. Not unlike, you know, one of the, one of the more famous fights of all time, the Fedor Milianenko Mirko Krokop fight where Fedor beat, uh, Mirko on, on the feet in large part because of the way that he was able to keep Mirko moving back and, um, and pressuring him and not allowing Mirko to set up the strikes that he likes. So that, I think that'll be a really interesting fight I'm looking forward to. There, there aren't a lot of, a lot of money fights coming up in, uh, in the near future, but there are a lot of interesting fights in various divisions in, in the UFC. I really like that Ioana, uh, Andrade fight. Uh, Michael Bisping versus Yoel Romero, I'm very much looking forward to. Have um, you contributed, the, the, by the way. Contributed? To, to, to the GoFundMe campaign, or the, the, uh, um, the, the, the medical fund that, that he started for, for Bisping. Um, oh, no, no, not, not yet. Yeah. I figured once, once the fight got announced officially. Um, but no, I, I feel, I feel bad about the whole thing. Um, so yeah, <laughs> anything, anything Bisping needs afterwards, I'm certainly, I'm certainly willing to help out. Um, you because you've been a, you, you, you are one of the reasons that he is doomed to, uh, um, to, to, to pain and suffering. Uh, because you're such a Yoel uh, fan that I, I just think you know you, you're. Well, it's part- not. Yeah. It's not. It, hold on. <laughs> Number one, it's not. It, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not dooming him to anything. Like I mean, the fight's What's, gonna happen either way. You think I, so? You don't think it's your my, your boosterism that's led to this? No, no. I mean, it's obvious that Romero had to get the shot at some point. And, and to clarify, I mean, you call me a fan. I'm not a fan. I'm a I'm a, I'm a, I'm a journalist. Wait, I am just objectively calling it like it is. Yo Romero is the destroyer of worlds. He is the 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 future middleweight champion. He's going to hold the title for a good 15 years. These are just objective facts. I I I don't know why you would you would bring in the the idea that I'm not objective about my analysis with Yo Romero. The All great right. Yoel Romero. I stand corrected. Yes, thank yes. you. I, I appreciate that. You're, you're welcome. Um, so yeah, I mean th- that fight. There's the the the, the Habib uh, Tony Ferguson fight for yeah. the uh, for the interim lightweight f- title should be a really a really interesting fight. Um, so yeah, I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of fun stuff on on the horizon, even if it's those aren't necessarily big fights. Hey, uh, the the, uh, the 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 fight with uh, um, uh, T.J. Dillashaw and uh, Oh, shit, a Cody Garbrandt. Yeah, I mean that should be a really fun fight at at, at bantamweight. Um, see, I mean there are a lot of there are a lot of interesting fights coming. When is up. that? Is there? Are they both? I'm trying to. Are they coaching the uh, Ultimate Fighter? Yes, they are. Yeah, both. Yeah. I've, uh, um, and so what's the t- what's the date now when that wraps and they go to the finale and they'll fight? I'm not sure. Okay, um, not either. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know when the, uh, cause I mean, they've, they've, they've varied the, uh, the air dates for some of these things and they've even played around a little bit in terms of the timing of when they've run the fights too. So, um, I'm not sure, but yeah. The, the, I'm like, looking forward to Cody Garbrandt cause I mean, UFC needs, needs, you know, some stars to replace some of them who are, who are not participating at the moment. Um, uh, and you know, they, they, both of them actually have some potential to, to rise and become draws. Who are, who, if, if a year and a half from now, I say that UFC's established three big pay-per-view draws from today's current roster, who, who just kind of comes to mind as rising to that level among the, the, the field a, right now? A year from now. I don't, I don't see that happening a year from now as far as new stars. Um, I don't think the conditions are, 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 are there for that. I said a year um, and a half. Does that change things? No, not really. Okay. I don't see them having three, I don't see them having three new drawing cards in a year and a half. Yeah. Uh, I'd have to think okay. hard. Right. Um, cause I, I think it, it would be more likely it would be someone that would come up that wasn't really on the radar. It's just sort of, you know, like coming out of, coming out of nowhere. Cause the people that are, that are, uh, that are in there, I don't think of as sort of breaking through. Um, even if I think they, you know, there are a lot of guys that could, you know, have star qualities. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're not making ownership feel any better right now. <laughs> There's gonna be good fights that almost nobody watches compared to the big stars who were on top when you bought the company. Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully the the with uh, Ronda moving out, uh, moving out, and Connor doing his 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 thing, perhaps it'll it'll make people think of the people that are there in a higher light because they won't be overshadowed. They'll sort of be the biggest thing going. I mean, that's sort of. A hope is, you know, is you. I mean, it's the same thing we talk about with, like, with uh, with WrestleMania, where when you have this, this WrestleMania card and you bring all these names from the past, it becomes very hard for the young stars to be taken seriously in that light. Whereas, oftentimes, some of the ones that have been more successful is when they don't have a bunch of older stars coming in. It's just younger guys, and they become the focal point, and people say, "Hey, that guy's really, you know, that guy's really special on, on his, you know, on his own merits." So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what Vince went for with the new generation campaign, and there was, you know, Shawn Michaels, but there was also Adam Bomb. You know, some people who stuck around and some people didn't. But yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if I'd bring up Adam Bomb as like your your prime example of like the guy that uh, that's you know the attempt to to make into a uh, a main eventer when the uh, no, but the other guys are moving out. But he was part of kind of that that the, the the little videos or whatever you know. I mean that they would. You know, it's a new generation. He was, he was part of that group. I mean, of, of, you know, the ones who were taking the spot of the Saturday Night's Main Event era stars who had all departed. So, I'm just saying, uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't marketed like, he was never pushed to the very top, but that's because he was sabotaged by the click. <laughs> Is that what happened? <laughs> Um, yeah, so as far as that, uh, that, that UFC card, the, the other one that, that was uh, impressive was, uh, Curtis Blades, who just looked like a monster against Adam Milstead before the, uh, injury did in Milstead. So I thought it was a fun card. There's, yeah. you know, some fun fights and some interesting results that sort of, uh, uh, gave, gave indications about where different fighters were, were going both, uh, forward and backward. Cool. All right. So, uh, Saturday, UFC 208. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, to tell you sort of the, the, about the card, like, 
I thought it was going to go for sure because it's Brooklyn, so it's you know just just head up. And I decided against going because the Holly Holm versus Jermaine Durandamy main event just felt like such a joke. Um, but now I'm kind of regretting it. I'm kind of wishing I, I had uh, made the plans to go up because there's some there's some fun fights on, on the rest of the card. So yeah. I think I think it should be um, an entertaining show, even if uh, the idea of this home Jermaine fight is kind of farce. Uh, just in the, you know, nobody wants the title, like, uh, in terms of the fans. You know, there isn't the talent depth for it. The biggest star isn't available. The fighters would rather fight at 135. You know, and, and I think that just billing Anderson Silva as the main event would have been more marketable anyway. Uh, as far as the fight goes, I- I'm picking Jermaine to score the upset. Um, we saw some vulnerabilities in, in home stand up as a kickboxer. Uh, against a kickboxer, rather, in uh, Valentina Shevchenko last time out. And I think Jermaine's kickboxing is more adaptable in MMA than Holmes' boxing, and she's bigger. I think Holmes probably a better overall fighter, but I think it's a bad style matchup for her against Jermaine. Um, the people that have been Jermaine have, de- have, have, you know, pretty much just grounded her and, 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 uh, and avoided striking with her, whereas that's, Holmes forte as well, so it's it's harder for me to imagine, uh, harder for me to imagine Holmes avoiding that. Anderson Silva versus Derek Brunson, it should be a fun fight. I mean, Brunson's coming off a loss. Um, Silva hasn't won in years, so you know both guys need a win. Uh, oh, that's Brunson, to say. Yeah, yeah, uh, given how successful he was for such yeah. a long period of time, but yeah, um, Brunson was was unbelievably reckless against Robert Whitaker in his last fight. And if he approaches this fight like that fight, I think he's just going to get massacred. Like, and, and honestly, I think that Whitaker fight is probably why he got this fight and that like, he's so aggressive with his striking. I think that the, the matchmakers along with, you know, like there probably weren't a lot of options. We're just thinking, wow, you know, if, if we get this fight where Derek Brunson, this guy has just been charging into guys, charges into Anderson Silva, like that's usually fireworks when somebody does that. So it'll be interesting to see how that fight goes. Jacare versus Tim Bosch, like <laughs> another freebie for Jacare. Like it's funny, Jacare, like as far as like elite fighters in the UFC, it feels like Jacare gets like more like freebie fights than anybody. I don't even know why it is, but like, you know, he just gets these these guys that it feels like have no chance against him. I I, I don't know. Let me check what the odds odds are. I'm I'm gonna guess the odds for this fight are Jacare at at hmm. Minus 800? I, I think it's going to be only minus 525. So the odds makers give him, uh, uh, give Bosch more of a chance <laughs> than I apparently do. But that's still, you know, obviously very, very heavy odds for that fight. So if you have $525,000 sitting around and want to earn $100,000, you're recommending people make that bet. Absolutely. Go for it, people. Like, okay. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much a sure thing. So bet that $525,000 and tell them I said that. <laughs> bet the mortgage. <laughs> um, yes, just to, just, just, just to be clear, I'm, I'm joking, people. Do not gamble. Um, I have some, some friends who are degenerate gamblers who are always like trying to get me to endorse various bets. And I, I always uh, say like, I don't want to encourage you to, to, to gamble. Um, even if I happen, if that, that particular bet seems like a good bet to me. So yeah, uh, yeah, I think Jock Ray is just better at everything than, than Tim Bosch. Yeah. Uh, Glover Chair against Jared Cannonier. That should be a fun fight. Like Cannonier looked, uh, you know, pretty darn good last time out. It's an interesting test for him against Glover, who's been around forever. It's a, uh, you know, 
uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just a good test for where he stands and Glover where he stands against a, a young, hungry fighter. I really like that fight. And then uh, Dustin Poirier against Jim Miller. Uh, Poirier, always very entertaining, and uh, Miller tends to have entertaining fights too. So that should be uh, that should be a, a good one while it lasts too. So yeah. Anything on prelims? I mean, they're 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 fights, but I mean nothing that particularly jumps out at me. Um, particularly uh, eight hours into the program. So, <laughs> what about the fight pass prelims? All right, very good. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> let's not let's do a bio of Ian McCall. Let's let's choose something to do that. <laughs> Uncle Creepy. Uh, <laughs> I was watching I was watching a documentary. By the way, I recommend it. It's on on Netflix. Yeah. Um, I forget what it's. I think it might be just called the Fight Game. Um, but it, it's sort of. Uh, it's uh it's just on MMA. It's it's a well produced documentary, but um and it came out relatively recently, but a lot of the footage was done a while ago and they had a video interview with uh with Ian McCall who had been dismissive of women's MMA and he was so dismissive in this in this documentary. I kind of almost don't want to say like what he said because like I might like like I don't want to like He's, what he said was 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 uh, yeah I don't remember but he he was just so dismissive of women's MMA fight. I don't want to serve fried chicken to women. I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it was along the lines of you know they should be in the uh, in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant yeah. rather than fighting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, the book one of the going uh, the guy who I thought of earlier that I wanted to bring up as far as writing a book who's seen a lot. But hasn't talked a lot, but the little times that he has, you can tell there's a little bit more going on than I think people give him credit for, is Michael Cole. I'd like to see Michael, I'd like to see Michael Cole write a book about what, especially what it was like to work for Vince McMahon and, uh, just be part of this era and write about what happened with Jim Ross and, and write about, I mean, I, I would want him completely divorced from the situation, you know, from, any ties with WWE and hopes to make the Hall of Fame someday and have a kind of a tell-all too. I, I think there might be some potential there for, for a pretty good book. There's definitely some potential there. I don't, I don't know if I'd bet on it being good, but I could definitely see it being good. Cause I, I think he know. might have a chip on his shoulder too, you know, a little bit, you know, oh, it's just all I hear about is Jim Ross and, and, uh, and this and that and, and as people, you know, and now you kind of see, you know, it makes me think that as a European tournament too. And it's just like, you know, he, he was a different version of Michael Cole during that without all the things that you've got to do, you know, when you're being yelled at by Vince and you're, you're promoting a, a certain, you know, playing a certain role on Raw and, you just, yeah, I just, there's, I think there's a chip on his shoulder and it would be interesting here, but for all I know, it, it would, it would be the book that I would expect from coach and it would be awful. You know, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I just, there's been a, you know, an interview or two with him where I'm like, I think there's more going on with him than we imagine or that, than we probably, the typical person thinks and it's, it's not coach bad. It wouldn't be coach bad and it actually could be really good. I could see, I don't think it would be awful, but I could also see it not being very good. I know. By the yeah. way. Two two notes as we wrap up here. Number one, um, since I pulled up the odds to, to look at that, uh, to look at the the Jacare fight. Oh, you're recommending I a bet. Ref- What's that? You're recommending a bet. Uh, uh, well, I already did the five hundred twenty-five thousand yes, dollars bet. Yes. Go for it, people. Yep. Um, Another one. <laughs> uh, only if you're a billionaire. Um, the the Jermaine fight I referred to earlier. I had referred to Jermaine scoring the upset. Um, when the odds came out originally. Um, Jermaine was the underdog, but they flipped. Um, Jermaine's now the uh, now the uh, favorite. So oh, okay. I'm I'm not thinking uh, alone and thinking she has a uh, yeah a, a good chance in that one. And second thing, I don't know if people have heard this. 
Um, but in case you have been able to hear um, a, a smoke detector battery in the background um, <laughs> or something or other, because uh, I still hear it. Hopefully you haven't. Have you heard it, Wade? No. See, this is awesome because I don't think it exists except in your head. <laughs> That would be the great, the great ending. I'm, you know, like, I'm like the, the crazy guy, like, picking at my ear, you know, like, <laughs> scraping it out, like, you know, trying to clean it out with a, with a screwdriver. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's, there's distant beeping in the background. I haven't been able to identify where it is yet. Um, it only, it only started yesterday, so I haven't been able to get it yet. So if, if it has been in the background, I apologize. I have um, not and, heard it, um, but I would say, I know your focus is on smoke detectors, but there's a chance it's also a bug. Like a chirping bug. No, definitely not a bug. Oh, okay. No, no, I, I was going through different possibilities. I was thinking, cause like, birds were chirping in the distance this morning when I was like, trying to figure out what was going on. And I was like, maybe I heard a bird, but no, then I heard the beep. So it's, it's definitely not, okay. it's definitely not a bird. It's definitely not a bug. It is an electronic device. And I am going to figure out what it is after we get off the phone. Alright, well, or, let's... or, I'm going to die trying, and this is our final show. <laughs> well, I, uh, I I look forward to finding – this is a good hook for people who thought of you know, maybe canceling their VIP. <laughs> we'll find no, 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 that's not the hook. But next week you'll reveal if, if, the, if it's still beeping. I think, well, you'll be a little crazed and insane if that's the case by, by then. But we, I'd like to know the resolution by next week, and we'd like to have cliffhangers to keep people as members beyond their content. There you go. So you're saying don't put it up for free on Twitter. Save it for the show. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if you have a question for the show, thefixmailbag at gmail.com. You can also click the contact us link at pwtorchvip.com if you uh, want to find email addresses for all purposes on the site, including thefixmailbag at gmail.com if you can't remember it. So there we go. Todd, thanks. I don't know if that we set a record, but uh, we're close. Oh, you really worked me this way, week, I, Wade. I'm filled with such bitterness and resentment as we hang up, but <laughs> what can you do? Well, use it use it as incentive uh, for finding out the beep. <laughs> yes, there you go. Take your anger <laughs> out on the beep. All right. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, VIP members. Until next time, Wade Keller on behalf of Todd signing off. <laughs>